Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... I meet economists and I say, oh, you know, housing, labor markets, whatever, it's interesting. But innovation, that's where the, the meat is right now. Heidi Williams and Caleb Watney on the economics of innovation. So within economics, there's a semi-famous quote from a long time ago that goes like this. Productivity isn't everything, but in the long run, it's almost everything. The quote is from economist Paul Krugman, and Krugman's point is that ultimately, how much productivity climbs each year? So roughly speaking, how much more efficiently an economy's workers become at producing goods and services is also what determines how much our living standards also rise from year to year. And so in the long run, there really is almost nothing that matters more. Unfortunately, for the last half a century, since roughly the early 1970s, productivity has been climbing a lot more slowly than it was climbing in the decades before. We've been stuck in a period that economists know as the great stagnation. And a big reason why is that the pace of innovation, the kind of scientific and technological innovation that leads to fast productivity growth, has been slow. And yet, there's now a lot of people who are optimistic, including me, by the way, that maybe the great stagnation is ending and that we'll get back to the faster productivity growth of the past. So why do I think this is possible? A few reasons. The economy in the last few years has become more dynamic. There's been a boom, for instance, in the number of startups that entrepreneurs launch each month. There's been a lot of workplace experimentation for how to get things done. The most obvious case here is the rise of remote work, but other things too. There have been some incredible new technologies, things like mRNA vaccines that just show a lot of promise. And of course, this would also include things like GPT-4 and other language learning models that suggest that artificial intelligence will have a moment soon, that it will at least have some effect on the economy. And finally, there's also been something of an intellectual shift. It's partly been brought on by higher inflation, and that shift is something that's compelled people from all across the ideological spectrum to really emphasize the importance of expanding the economy's capacity for growth, expanding the supply side of the economy, and to figure out how best to do that. How to answer questions like, how can policymakers come up with the best policies and design the country's institutions so that they help spur new technologies and innovations? Uh, how do we reform public institutions like the National Institutes of Health with its $47 billion budget uh, to fund the kind of scientific research and development that leads to transformative new technologies? And what have we learned about the way that science is actually done now? In other words, how do we get right the economics of innovation. That effort is where today's two guests come in. Heidi Williams is an economist and the director of science policy at the Institute for Progress, a think tank. And Caleb Watney is the co-founder and co-CEO of the Institute for Progress, or IFP. The three of us discussed the great stagnation and whether it might be ending. And we also talked about recent industrial policies passed by the U.S. government. Policies like the Chips and Science Act, which is aimed at developing a domestic semiconductor industry, and the Inflation Reduction Act, which will spend money to develop new clean technologies, among other things. And finally, we discussed some new ideas for how the country's existing scientific institutions, its commercial labs, universities, its public bodies, should approach the process of scientific discovery. 
All that and much more on this incredibly important topic. In the long run, perhaps there is no more important topic in today's chat. Here it is. Heidi Williams, Caleb Watney, welcome to The New Bazaar. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thank you. Really want the two of you to make me feel better to start the show. The Great Stagnation has lasted 50 years, right, with a few periods accepted, like the late 90s, when there was a period of fast productivity growth. But for the most part, really disappointing productivity growth for the better part of a half century, which is awful. Now there's increasingly, there are some signs of hope that we might be exiting it at some point soon. And the future is hard to predict, but how are you feeling about it? I'm feeling pretty good. I I like your caveat that the, the future is hard to predict and, you know, we could be having another conversation 10 years from now and things could look very differently. Um, but I think there's definitely a reason for optimism for a couple of high-level reasons. Uh, one is that there seems to have been major breakthroughs in a couple of key technologies that not only seem to be sort of promising in and of themselves, but they are promising platform technologies or general purpose technologies. So they apply all across the economy. They can make other industries also more productive, not just the industries that actually surface those technologies. Exactly, right. And so I think artificial intelligence is getting a lot of buzz these days, but I think that's for good reason. Um, it's been fun to play around with tools like GPT-4 myself, and I haven't thought that the think tank work is, you know, likely to be automated, but now I'm having second questions. You know, it's it's been remarkable to see. I think there's also tools like mRNA vaccines that seem to have unlocked a whole new platform of vaccine technology. We're now applying them to things like multiple sclerosis. There are certain kinds of cancer vaccines that seem to be on the horizon. Maybe we might get a, a, a vaccine for malaria. That's really promising. So I think... And dengue too. I think all kinds of things look promising right now, Exactly. Right? And okay. so it seems like, yeah, there's there's lots of like low-hanging fruit in biology, especially, that seems ripe to be picked. And, you know, as I think Heidi's and others' works can attest, like healthcare improvements are really massive for human well-being. So I think that's like one big reason to be optimistic. Yeah, so I think I'm optimistic for a different reason than Caleb, which is uh, I just feel like we haven't done a lot of really systematic thinking about low-hanging fruit opportunities to improve the productivity of how we do science and how science gets translated into innovations that people can actually use. And so, you know, if you think about all of the different ways that new discoveries come about and do we have the right incentives in scientific labs, you know, do we have the opportunities to translate scientific discoveries that are made at universities, like out into society? Do we have the correct incentives for what kinds of commercial leads actually get developed into, you know, candidate drug compounds that go through clinical trials and make their way through the FDA process and actually reach consumers as new drugs? I think that we've been a little bit lax about diagnosing problems in the system and that that's hampered our ability to think about identifying potential solutions and piloting new things and kind of learning about what's working and not working. And so I feel really optimistic because I feel like there's a lot of low-hanging fruit opportunities to do better diagnosis, better piloting, better learning, and kind of get productivity improvements at different points in the ecosystem. One of the things that Caleb and I are spending a lot of time working on is whose attention kind of do we need to be focusing where? So I actually feel like there's a lot of places where we just haven't even been collecting data on kind of the key parts of the system that we want to observe. And so a good example is the structure of scientific research labs. So Ben Jones, who's an economist at Northwestern, has done a lot of work looking at, you know, the structure of how we do science has been changing dramatically over the past several decades. So we've really These had a labs, shift. by the way, you're talking about labs inside of universities or companies or 
other places, other organizations? What, what exactly yeah. are we talking about here? So he's been documenting the rise of what he calls team science in both publication data, which, you know, primarily is associated with academic labs, like a biomedical lab at a medical school doing research on candidate drugs, mm-hmm. but also in patent data, which is much more associated with the rise of teams in commercial environments. And of course, academics patent and um, some firms publish. So it's not, but it's just to say that I think we see a rise of team science in innovation in both academic and commercial settings. And so we've gotten kind of a lot of facts that the structure of science is changing, but the institutions that we use to support scientific research for the most part have stayed the same. And so that's kind of led to people being concerned that there's a growing disconnect between how science is evolving, but that science policy in some sense is not keeping up. And so I think that's the kind of thing where, you know, if we were doing a better job of monitoring, like, how are labs changing and kind of what's the structure of the system we have in place to support scientific research and its underpinnings, that data would itself probably shed light on bottlenecks that then we could think about advocating for more informed changes to public policy. Um, to Heidi's point, like, there's lots of low-hanging fruit both on the micro level within sort of, like, scientific funding, but this is in some sense part of this much larger conversation that you're alluding to of how do we actually improve the productive capacity of the economy? I don't think it's an accident, actually, that we're having these big conversations about improving the supply side of the economy when the constraints on the supply side are becoming more more apparent than ever. I think for a combination of COVID, uh, Ukraine, high inflation, shipping, uh, you know, crises, like that they've made the, the bottlenecks in the economy feel much more salient than I think they used to. I actually sometimes wonder if we might be in a moment somewhat similar to the uh, the post-1970s. You know, you have a period of high inflation, and then that period of high inflation actually highlights politically sort of the importance of things like airline or trucking deregulation. And there was sort of a big focus on almost a mini boom in in supply-side progressive and maybe at at that period uh, of time as well. And so I wonder if we might be going through a similar moment ourselves. In terms of the obstacles that might be slowing down this transition to a better future, one of the biggest concerns is just that there's too much bureaucracy, you know, needing all kinds of permits to build houses and apartments and factories and other things. And if you talk to people in the real estate industry, they'll tell you some nightmarish stories about it. Uh, Another bottleneck might be immigration policy, just not getting it right, making it too hard for the kinds of immigrant scientists and other workers who might come up with new innovations to actually move to the U.S. and to stay here. Uh, Maybe there's other political obstacles. What do the two of you think? I think that's right. I mean, there's a number of trends you could look at here. One is what the the writer Ross Douthat has, has written in his book about the complacent uh, society, based, or sorry, the, the decadent society, and then Tyler Cowen had an adjacent book, The, the Complacent Class, uh, looking at how sort of actually rising levels of wealth in some sense means that we have more to lose, and that creates more sort of societal resistance to large-scale change, and it means that sort of like giving up small comforts in terms of, you know, tolerating a bit more uh, construction around your local house uh, might become more politically salient than for you than maybe a small boost in living standards. And so I think that is sort of just like one macro level force is that our society has become a bit more risk averse, a bit more complacent. I think that's more of a cultural phenomenon and harder to change necessarily through policy, but is um, sort of one tailwind. I think there's also, as you mentioned, sort of, you know, slowing rates of immigration. Uh, you saw this especially during COVID, sort of a pretty dramatic drop in the number of, say, international students that were coming to the United States. I think one of the key things IFP focuses on is the the role that the United States plays as kind of a global provider of R&D, a global provider of innovation. And so when the United States slows down, that's not just bad for the United States, but it's in fact bad for the whole globe. Heidi, is it getting harder to come up with new ideas, new innovations, new scientific advances? Um, 
So that's a very uh, contentious question. <laughs> um, uh, well, your you answer know. doesn't have to be yes or no. That's all right. <laughs> um, well, let me take one example that I've looked at in more detail, which is, uh, you know, I think people are getting increasingly concerned about that it's getting more and more expensive to develop new drugs, and in particular that, like, clinical trials are getting more expensive. And, you know, one thing in terms of what are we pessimistic about, I feel like problems in the healthcare sector have been really stubborn in the U.S. And, you know, it's just the landscape is really complicated with public and private payers and whose incentives and efforts at coordinating and efforts at entrepreneurship, you just often see them fall down, you know, on the kind of the same things. And even when like really well-known entrepreneurs come in and try to make a big splash, like oftentimes things just don't go the way that they expected. And in the clinical trial space, this has been increasingly concerning because as Caleb also mentioned, the idea that we're going to be able to realize gains in life expectancy from new medicines is just one of the main sources of economic growth and social progress and social value that we're going to get out of things. And so to the extent that we're discovering fewer ideas and or it's just getting more expensive to translate those ideas into technologies that actually benefit patients and increase lifespan and and increase well-being, that's an area that I feel really concerned about. And so in my personal view, like, I, I don't think the evidence is incredibly clear on whether we're discovering more or fewer ideas, but I am quite concerned in areas where it looks like it's getting harder for those ideas to get translated out into impacts that really matter for society. And I think there's a lot of stubbornness in healthcare markets, like I said, that kind of make me want to prioritize making progress there. Yeah, I mean, I, I may be slightly more sympathetic to the ideas are getting harder to find um, story, partially you just look at aggregate rates of how many resources we are in some sense throwing into the scientific production function, the number of researchers, the number of research dollars, and then you look at sort of like high-level macro views of productivity. Um, and it seems like we're throwing, you know, orders of magnitude more resources in terms of human capital and research dollars and infrastructure into this machine and getting basically stable results. And so I'm glad that we continue to make new discoveries, but it is concerning, absolutely, that like we're having to throw so many more resources to get that same rate of improvement. Now, now, I think to Heidi's point, we just like know so little about actually what optimal science looks like. And the fact that the, the underlying structure of scientific production has changed so much with the rise of team science and this sort of almost industrialization of science and the fact that our institutions haven't evolved to match indicates to me that, you know, regardless of whether or not ideas are getting harder to find, I think there's still a lot more that can be done. Do the two of you think that the U.S. in the Internet era, the U.S. economy, has focused too much on bits and not enough on atoms. The idea that we've, you know, spent a lot of time, energy, resources, money, you know, talented graduates and things like that going to work at companies that do things like social media and whatnot, and not enough resources, time, energy, money, talent, et cetera, going towards what I guess you might call, I don't know, physical science, right? right? Coming up with things that we can see and touch and feel, the visible, the concrete. My my personal view would be yes, but that's not necessarily the fault of like any one individual or even institution. It's almost been a kind of like, you could call it regulatory arbitrage. Uh, and then also, I think, somewhat technological arbitrage that basically, especially in the venture capital space, they're looking for the, you know, these really massive returns. And you can invest you know, in one year a really small amount and then get doublings and doublings and doublings. And it seems like that's partially driven by how much harder it is to build in the physical world. One of our, our senior fellows is this guy, uh, Brian Potter, who has worked in the construction industry for you know 20 plus years and has kind of been obsessed with this question, why has productivity in the construction sector been falling in real terms over the last 40 years? Uh, meaning it takes like 
you know, even inflation adjusted more man hours and more dollars to build the same bridge, you know, that we could have built in, in 1960. It's become less efficient over time, exactly. not more. And that's not what you expect in any sort of, you know, normal, uh, you know, sector where you increase, you expect increasing productivity. And so that's like a really troubling sign. And I think that is, in fact, like that, that is one of the symptoms that has led to sort of this big discrepancy. Uh, I think young people want to work on ambitious areas where they feel like their work can make a difference. And currently building in the physical world, I don't think feels that way. I think there's a lot of people who, you know, would like to be building the next generation of uh, material science companies or, you know, hyperloops in the U.S. or any number of things. But it doesn't feel like there's actually a viable way, I think, for individuals to feel like they can make a difference on those. And that's for a very large number of sort of regulatory issues and and science funding issues and maybe some aspects of just sort of like where low-hanging fruit is in terms of an investment context. There's been some big policy measures taken over the last year, partly as a response to the COVID experience, and in particular to the snarling of global supply chains, the semiconductor shortages, shortages of other goods um, that arose during that time. And my first question about this is, did the globalized system that we have of supply chains really work all that badly? Are we sure about that in the first place? I, I think it is somewhat underrated, yeah, how quickly uh, it seems like our global supply chains um, responded. Um, but, you know, for the most part, we had, you know, a couple of weeks of kind of being concerned about toilet paper. But then, you know, for the most part, there were not widespread persistent shortages, especially of essential goods. So I, I agree with the basic take. I think supply chains reacted better than maybe people commonly thought. But I, I think on the other hand, it COVID definitely did sort of lay bare the fact that a certain set of like efficiencies have been built in that are not fully internalized by specific market actors. So a lot of, you know, uh, leanness in supply chains, first in, first out kind of stuff is, you know, can be narrowly economically efficient for a particular firm, um, but can sometimes not always be the most efficient at the social level in terms of making sure that we have access to things like, you know, PPE during critical emergencies. And so I think there's absolutely a this case. protective equipment that, that was necessary. Um, yeah, face masks and then five masks. COVID. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, and so I certainly think there, there can be like a, a compelling public interest in making sure that for particular public goods, we're building in a bit more redundancy into supply chains. But I also think the sort of the globalized nature of supply chains also gave it sort of increased flexibility to be able to move manufacturing around to different hubs um, and allow us to respond faster than maybe if we were trying to build everything just narrowly within the U.S. Yeah, and it seems to me like the question is not just did we have shortages, but what would have been the best response to those shortages, right? And if you look at measures of overall imports, they climbed during that time. There was a huge spike in demand. That's what that's what created the shortage in the first place. And I guess it just it strikes me that it's not necessarily more resilient to concentrate the production of certain goods all in one place as opposed to having these kind of flexible global supply chains. But I could be wrong about that in terms of building res resiliency into the system or redundancies. That might work, but I'm not sure. I'm just trying to, to see if we're approaching the question in the right way in the first place. I think there's a related concept. A lot of the sort of ongoing investments in the supply chain I, that I think have come out of recent legislation, especially, say, the Chips and Science Act, are actually less about supply chain you know, resiliency in the face of, say, a pandemic, and more about sort of national security concerns. So I think that this is especially the case for kind of the, the semiconductor manufacturing capacity. I think in the shadow of a lot of this is sort of concerns about what would happen to Taiwan in the event of, a, of an invasion, especially given the fact that um, Taiwan is, you know, home to uh, TSMC, basically the world's leading semiconductor manufacturing company. 
company, especially for a lot of the really cutting-edge high-end chips that are used for military equipment, you know, top AI chips, all sorts of things. And so in some sense, like, I, I think you could conceptualize what Chips and Science was doing is almost creating a kind of insurance policy that maybe in the, the medium Chips scenario- and Science is one of the specific pieces of legislation that was passed- Right. And meant to build more semiconductors here in the U.S. Correct. Yeah. And and providing you know, billions of dollars of subsidies for domestic manufacturing of semiconductors in the United States. And so it might end up being that, you know, in the median scenario, you know, some large share of those subsidies look a little bit wasteful and like, you know, they didn't actually directly affect the thing that we were hoping for, but that it provides a kind of insurance policy against a downside risk of a you know Taiwanese invasion. However, and this has been an ongoing focus of our work, is that um, subsidies oftentimes are not enough to actually onshore the kinds of uh, manufacturing that you would like, that uh, just as important, if not more so, is a focus on the talent side. And we're quite concerned that a lot of these investments in um, all sorts of manufacturing equipment, but especially semiconductors, are going to be held hostage to the fact that we just have a huge shortage of talented, trained semiconductor manufacturing experts in the United States. Um, and, you know, we we are hopeful that, you know, either Congress or the, the executive branch can sort of tweak or change existing pathways to make it easier for talented uh, STEM professionals from all over the world to come to the U.S. and help us rebuild, you know, uh, manufacturing supply chains. But it's still very much a, a contingent factor and in no way guaranteed. Yeah, it's hard, right? Because if not, you just end up making a lot of semiconductors domestically that are incredibly expensive. It also doesn't stop, you know, some of the mistakes that take place at the level of a company or at the level of an industry. Because one of the big examples that people used about semiconductor shortages was the automotive sector. But the automotive sector had canceled in the immediate aftermath of COVID all of its semiconductor orders from Taiwan because it thought nobody was going to want cars. Then it turned out pretty quickly that they realized they were wrong and everybody did want cars, but it was too late because those semiconductor orders went to other places. Um, they could have made that mistake even if the semiconductors were made here. You'd still have the shortages in the totally, automotive totally. sector, right? Yep. Like that do- it doesn't stop those kinds of mistakes. I think that's right. I think you could also distinguish a related thing here, sort of like onshoring versus friendshoring. So insofar as a lot of the concerns about, uh, you know, uh, manufacturing lines are primarily about national security, uh, then it's not necessarily the case that everything has to be manufactured specifically in the United States. So long as they're coming from sort of reliable countries that we feel like are we're allied with and share our values, you know, we can still get a lot of the benefits of these globalized international supply chains while also still maintaining a bit more resiliency in the event of certain national security risks. I was reading, Caleb, one of your tweets earlier. Uh, (laughs) This tweet in particular was about China. You were responding to people who were worried that China was going to be able to steal the sort of magic that Taiwan has in terms of making semiconductors. And you were making the point that they're wrong. And here's here's what you wrote. The TSMC process knowledge, TSMC is the the famous company in Taiwan that makes semiconductors. The TSMC process knowledge is not stored within any particular individual who can be poached. It exists more as a kind of embodied, distributed knowledge that operates within a deep and varied community of practice, unquote. This could also apply to the U.S., right? Absolutely. We have to recreate the process knowledge here. If we don't have it, that matters, doesn't it? Totally agree. Uh, side note, you know, I, I wasn't expecting to come onto the podcast and get my own tweets read to me. You know, maybe this can be an ongoing series. I do my research, my friend. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, but no, I, I think that's totally right. Um, I think one of the reasons why it's been harder for the U.S. to maybe like restart our domestic semiconductor manufacturing capacity is because we lost it in the first place. And for industries that rely tons on this tacit embodied knowledge, once you lose it, it, it takes a long time to sort of rebuild it. So that, that's in some sense like a warning for the United States, but it's also a sign of strength in terms of our existing communities. I think one of the reasons the United States has so for so long been on the cutting edge of science and innovation is because we have really deep and interconnected communities, both around sort of basic science, technical know-how, engineering capacity, good design aesthetics, and like these communities in places like Boston and Silicon Valley and Austin and, and elsewhere, uh, you just have tons of interactions between people from these overlapping communities who are constantly sharing prototypes and ideas. It almost gets absorbed into the culture of the kind of the local area. And so I was sort of responding to a specific concern, you know, uh, how concerned should we be if particular engineers end up getting, you know, poached to go overseas? And I think certainly we we could invest more in certain kind of espionage networks. But I think the most important thing is trying to maintain these communities of practice where this embodied process knowledge lives, again, as as a function, not just of any one individual, but as, as this larger ecosystem. And Heidi, how hard is it to develop those communities of practice and to to develop new process knowledge that's necessary for scientific innovation uh, and to really get right incentives and the economics of innovation? I mean, a version of the question you asked is kind of a big focus of the federal policy um, momentum that you talked about, which is trying to think about these place-based innovation policy grants. And some of that's through the National Science Foundation Regional Innovation Engine kind of program. But um, there's several agencies that have been trying to pursue things like that. And in some sense, you could portray the chips and science effort, you know, in, as, as one of those. But, you know, I think if you look at the historical record, it doesn't provide a lot of reason for optimism that this is an easy thing to come in and do. And so I think there's a lot of hope that federal funds are going to come in and they're going to somehow unlock the potential that's going to then increase the return for other and public and private dollars to come in and really like, you know, create a flywheel effect of investment and really fix the bottlenecks. But I think the problem is that local communities often don't agree on what the relevant bottlenecks are and, you know, why there isn't kind of an effective community of practice in a given region, in a given area. We don't have that great of a set of case studies to look at it. When this one community started doing a new community of practice in a given area, what were the ingredients of success and how can we kind of take those and try to develop them elsewhere? And so we're really starting from a place where the qualitative and quantitative evidence on how to do this well is just not a very thick base. And then that meets a lot of federal enthusiasm for like, let's go do this and kind of develop a Silicon Valley, you know, in other areas and really get regional growth of a way that we think we might really value for a lot of political reasons, for example. Um, but I think that the the disconnect between kind of the enthusiasm and our ability to really come in and provide expert advice and guidance on how to do that is large. And I'm honestly concerned that, you know, we, we may be kind of ruling out things more quickly than we would want to. And so um, I know that's something that there's a lot of thoughtful people, you know, putting a lot of effort into and the new NSF Technology Innovations and Partnerships uh, Directorate, which is interesting because this is it's the National Science, Science Foundation. Foundation. Okay. Yeah. So it's, they haven't had a new directorate in decades. And the new one that came in is very focused on regional innovation and partnerships with industry and kind of thinking about translating research into economic benefits for society. And they have a lot of great people and they're putting a lot of thought into how to design these. But it's it's just a hard 
problem. And so I, I'm excited to see where it goes, but it's challenging. Usually the, the most famous example of a successful industrial policy that's given is DARPA, the, what does it stand for? The Defense uh, Advanced, for Research, Advanced Projects Research Agency. Projects Agency, right. Essentially helping to invest in, um, you know, the kinds of innovations that led to the internet that contributed to mRNA technologies and so forth. It wasn't all just a publicly funded thing that led to these advances. There was a lot of overlap with what the private sector was doing, but that's usually given as the most famous successful example of industrial policy. What are the right lessons to learn from the earlier example? Right. I think one of the things that we can learn is that it helps to be really clear and focused on the specific problem that you're trying to solve and the way in which you're solving some gap that exists in the market. I think one of the things that that DARPA was getting at was the fact that a lot of the the specific innovations that they were initially focused on uh, were defensive in in scope. Weaponry, exactly, exactly. Where there's not you know strong pre-existing market uh, incentives to you know develop unless you have some sort of government buyer. But they also kind of took this approach of uh, really trying to focus on specific engineering bottlenecks that were in some sense blocking much larger progress in an entire area. And by having this this somewhat, you know, free form format where they enabled specific project managers within DARPA, gave them tons of discretion to be able to make coordinated technological bets within an area and say, you know, we could invest in one of these areas and it might not work by itself. But if we invest in these five areas at the same time and they all happen to work off, that'll sort of enable a whole ecosystem that couldn't have existed otherwise. And so certainly I, I think that's been a, a pretty successful model. And, and, you know, we're interested and curious to see kind of how the ARPA model can be successful successfully applied in other places. But I, I also think, uh, you know, there's there's been a lot of energy in D.C. towards uh, expanding the number of ARPAs. And I think we need to be clear about what... ARPAs are what exactly here? Like, so like these things are, like the Advanced Research Exactly, Project yeah. Agency, so so because right. DARPA has been so successful, there's been a lot of momentum or energy in taking that model and applying it into other places. So there's IARPA, which is focused on the intelligence community. There's ARPA-E, which is focused on sort of energy production. Um, there's been the recently launched ARPA-H, which is focused on healthcare that was launched last year. Um, and all of these are in some sense trying to take that spirit of empowered program managers who are trying to solve specific bottlenecks kind of in an area and, and trying to scale it. And so I'm really excited and interested to see how much success they're able to have. Um, but I also want to make sure that we're we're being careful and c- deliberate about basically what the ARPA model is doing and not trying to fit it in as a square peg and a round hole into areas where it might not make sense. You mentioned how important it is to be clear and specific about the goals of any new policy and the gaps in the market that it's trying to fill. But of course, there has been a lot of controversy about the Chips and Science Act and the Inflation Reduction Act for including things like Buy America provisions, which require that companies that receive public funding from a bill only purchase things from domestic suppliers instead of, you know, possibly sourcing what they need from less expensive suppliers abroad. So just to give an example for the listeners, you know, the parts needed to make high-speed rail or broadband networks are sometimes made overseas. And so the stated aim of building out better infrastructure, which is, you know, the whole point of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, is set against the goal of throwing business to U.S. suppliers. And then there's other examples of how this could happen when the government makes new industrial policies, which doesn't by itself mean 
that policies like this are overall not worth trying, but it does seem like it threatens to make them less effective in doing what they're actually supposed to do. Right. I think one of the big maybe pieces that helps catalyze interest in this discussion was a, a piece a couple of weeks ago by uh, Ezra Klein, you know, titled The Problem with Everything Bagel Liberalism or something like that. And he was using this as an example, not the actual Everything Bagel, which he acknowledges in the piece is, in fact, a great bagel. Everyone loves Everything Bagel. Looks. <laughs> but I uh, was using a metaphor from the Everything Everywhere All at Once movie that came out, I think, last year, where basically so many things are piled onto the Everything Bagel that it becomes a black hole, uh, which, you know, sucks up um, a sort of all sorts of other things into its reach. And I think his point in the piece was that, you know, we just need to be careful about sort of prioritization within a goal and that oftentimes when we try to achieve every policy goal at the same time in the same piece of legislation, you create inevitable conflicts and trade-offs. And especially when the, the, the primary goal you're trying to achieve is already so tenuous, is already so hard. We talked a little bit earlier about how difficult it has been for the United States, you know, and for China also to sort of replicate the kind of semiconductor prowess that a place like Taiwan has been able to achieve. When you're already dealing with such a difficult goal, such narrow margins, such, you know, narrow chance of success, actually, trying to make that that more difficult with other very sort of noble, worthwhile goals uh, can end up causing the original impetus of the program to fail. And so it's at the very least, I think, like an important note and something that the administration needs to be focused on. There's sort of a an administrative discipline that I think has sometimes been been lacking. You could actually contrast this, interestingly, with the success of Operation Warp Speed which took a very specific, narrow-focused goal of we are going to streamline the pathway to development for COVID-19 vaccines. We want to get these vaccines out as quickly as possible. We're going to be willing to spend, you know, tens of billions of dollars. We're going to streamline regulations across dozens of different apartments. But like this sole thing is our goal and we're going to make sure that we achieve it. And Operation Warp Speed was an enormous success. You know, we developed an entirely new you could call it genre of vaccines, you know, in record time, faster than basically we've ever developed a vaccine. And so I think that was a, that was a tremendous achievement. And I think a point in favor of the virtues of, of being careful and targeted about what goals you're trying to achieve. Heidi? Industrial policy is a phrase that people often use to mean very different things. But I do feel like you can look at the historical record. And when we've made very focused investments, we've often just had a lot of success in industrial policy. So like one example that I often point to when I teach about this is when Nixon led the war on cancer and the National Cancer Act came into place, there was like really laser focus on we're not even measuring kind of cancer incidence and cancer mortality in the U.S. And so how are we going to even think about targeting resources at cancer patients in a reliable way? And there was also just a lot of acknowledgement that it was hard for a lot of patients to even have access to clinical trials. And there was a really focused investment in this infrastructure of creating a clinical trial network that made it much easier to recruit patients in a variety of locations, because traditionally, clinical trials would be single-site trials. And so I would recruit patients in the Stanford catchment area for a clinical trial that I was running at Stanford, whereas in cancer, they put in place this infrastructure that makes it much easier for individual patients to be enrolled by their physician in disparate locations, but be integrated into a trial. And so it's really made it much easier for private firms to run trials. And this one piece of public investment actually unlocked a lot of potential for private dollars to be invested more productively. And so 
you can look and there's like a lot of controversy over whether we won the war on cancer or lost the war on cancer. And people generally tend to be really pessimistic. But actually, in my view, and there's a nice paper by two economists, Bo Honoré and Adriana Loris Mooney, that kind of makes this point. It largely looks in the time series like we're losing the war on cancer just because we're much less likely to die of heart disease. So we're living longer and then we're more likely to die of cancer. And so it's actually kind of hard to tease out like whether we're winning, not winning. But I think there's a lot of investment that cancer drug development was much more productive after this kind of targeted public investment came in. But that kind of industrial policy, if you will, is just kind of like very much like the Operation Warp Speed example. It's just a very narrow targeted goal thinking about what is an investment the public sector can make that's going to unlock opportunities for private investment. And I feel like those are the examples that we should be looking to when we think about how to do industrial policy more productively going forward. What's also intriguing about what you just said was that there was a clear data shortfall also when Nixon put in place this act, right? Mm -hmm. That like if we weren't measuring the kinds of things that we needed to know about you know, about cancer and how long you could expect to live after you got it and things like that, how on earth could you measure whether or not a new policy is working? So the question it raises to me is, are there currently big data shortfalls in terms of how we measure successful industrial policies like the ones that we just passed? Yeah. I mean, it's it's a hard thing. I mean, even if you look at just, you know, measuring, do we have enough engineers to even staff the facilities that are going to be doing semiconductor fabrication labs in the U.S.? And, you know, it's just getting the data that you need to even do those tabulations itself is hard. You know, much less, how are we thinking about kind of the economic growth impacts of like some investment that the National Science Foundation is going to come in and make? So I think regional development in general is like a really hard goal to often measure the key parts of the system that you feel like you're trying to unlock progress in because the behavior are made by a variety of actors. Let me just contrast it with an easier case. So when you have a traditional scientific grant, I'm a federal science agency like the National Institutes of Health. I give a grant to a scientist. The scientists publish papers. The scientists, you know, files patents. Those are all things that I can measure. But with these industrial policy programs and regional grants, you're making a targeted public investment in an infrastructure, but it's meant to benefit a lot of people that you're not even directly interacting with. And so just thinking about what are even parts of the system that we can measure that are going to give us a sense of whether this investment is actually having a productivity gain that we are trying to unlock is just a much harder problem. Caleb, since you like it so much when I read your own words back to you, (laughs) this is a passage from an essay that you wrote last year about how to create the entrepreneurial state. How do we come up with the right kinds of government policies that really foster an innovative economy? Here's what you wrote, quote, so how does one actually make an entrepreneurial state? There is no single correct model. And in fact, an essential element of entrepreneurship is the ability to correct course and revise plans in real time to accomplish overarching goals. With that in mind, Some recent attempts at rebuilding state capacity and fostering agile stability within the U.S. federal government can shed some light on the how of making an entrepreneurial state, unquote. I'm fascinated by this concept of agile stability. Those are two words that seem to contradict each other. You could have called it stable agility too, right? It's true. What does that mean? So to be clear, this is, yeah, not a term I coined. Uh, I was was reviewing this book, How to Make an Entrepreneurial State, which is sort of a a follow-up book, um, I think around 2012 or so. Um, Mariana Mazzucato, a European economist, wrote this book, The Entrepreneurial State. And in it, she was trying to sort of 
help provide evidence for the fact that oftentimes state investments through things like DARPA, the the defense agency we're talking about earlier, have played an important role in innovation. And so her kind of original book was trying to shed some light on that concept and provide examples. Um, And so then there was a follow-up book that I I think came out last year by by some co-authors that were uh, looking at sort of the the tangible, like, how do you actually do this? How do you think about building an entrepreneurial state and the kind of bureaucracy that can really think about this? And so in the book, they coined this term agile stability as kind of being one of the core attributes of government is that it kind of provides a type of stability that doesn't necessarily exist in the private sector. You need to be able to count on, say, revenue streams that, you know, promise when you give out a grant that that's actually going to exist, that a government agency, when it says it's going to regulate something in a specific way, that it's going to do that. So there's kind of this stability that typifies what government is trying to do. But at the same time, to really, you know, engage in the innovation process, you need to be agile. You need to be able to change what you're doing over time. In fact, that, that's sort of what it means to, to be innovative. And so I think their book is trying to get at how do you take this fundamental contrast and actually embed it into an organizational structure. And so, so it's quite hard. At, but in my review, I was trying to point out maybe what I thought were some, some promising examples uh, within the federal government of, of times when we have seen an agency kind of change course in its mission or embrace new tools. One example that I think is maybe particularly interesting is NASA. So NASA, throughout the 60s and 70s and and its, you know, sort of uh, 20th century cohort was mostly doing direct space launches. They were directly managing the the building of the ships. They operated all the missions. They trained the astronauts. They sent everyone to orbit. They, you know, sort of were setting uh, at a high level both the goals and doing all the implementation themselves. But we've seen sort of in the 21st century sort of the rise of SpaceX, the commercialization of space. And a lot of that was actually enabled by NASA changing what it viewed as its mission, or at least embracing tools that it previously would not have considered. So SpaceX, a lot of the way that they sort of got off the ground in the first place was this program NASA launched called COTS, the Commercial Orbital Transit something. (laughs) something I forget exactly. Uh, But the COTS program was basically trying to act as a market maker. So rather than directly resupplying the International Space Station, which was sort of the mission that they were trying to do, uh, they could have, you know, used the space shuttle launch to, you know, resupply it directly themselves. That was an orbital um, launcher that they owned and operated themselves. Instead, they basically said, we're going to accept bids from different companies. We're going to deliberately try to accept bids from multiple companies so that we ensure redundancy, so that we ensure some amount of competition between different kinds of organizations. And they specifically took a bet on, on space. SpaceX is kind of a young, lean organization that was sort of promising they could majorly bring down the cost of getting into orbit. And lo and behold, it, it, it succeeded. But that was, like I think, a pretty big risk in some sense on NASA's part, the fact that they were willing to sort of partner with the private sector in this way and act as a market maker rather than as a direct innovator themselves. And so sometimes innovation in the public sector can actually look like working with the private sector in more productive ways. And Heidi, it seems like an important part of agility is experimentation and failure, tolerating a certain amount of failure. Because if you're experimenting, some things are going to work and some things are not going to work. What is the relevance of tolerating failure and experimenting with different models of trying to figure out what's going to work in terms of really inspiring new innovations? Yeah, so I think you can look at other fields and get a sense that a willingness to get the right answer and a willingness to rigorously set up a study that's explicitly designed to test should we do things A or B way can be just 
incredibly transformative in letting you be surprised about what the answer is and also providing evidence that can refute sort of beliefs that people have that, you know, think the world is one way or it is the other way. So I think a really nice example from the field of development economics is there was a, a long time where um, people were very against giving out cash transfers directly to people. There was sort of a belief that we wanted to give out in-kind transfers rather than cash transfers. So you want to give out food rather than giving people money because people would just, of course, misuse money and like, why would we ever do that? And over time, there was a series of work, much of it done by uh, GiveDirectly, which is a nonprofit, that basically did this large-scale experimentation showing and documenting, you know, what happens when you give people cash transfer instead of in-kind goods, and what are their outcomes? Like, are they better off? Um, USAID and Daniel Hendel, who was a program officer there at the time, did this really innovative cash transfer randomized experiment within USAID, explicitly trying to benchmark how good are different interventions that USAID USAID, the development uh, aid agency in the U.S., does relative to cash transfers and kind of advocating for shouldn't we use as kind of a benchmark that anything we do that's in kind should be at least as good as cash because otherwise we could just be sending people cash directly. And I think that view, you know, while it's not been universally accepted, that commitment to learning and commitment to experimentation really changed people's views on the correct role for cash transfers and how to think about what's the best way to improve the lives of people in poor countries. When you look at kind of science and innovation policy, as we talked about before, the landscape of how we support science just has been relatively stagnant. Like we haven't even changed science policy, even though the structure of science has been changing. There's just, when you talk to scientists, there's not a lot of reflection on is the structure of science support, you know, the right way? Because they're focused on the research. They're not thinking about this as kind of a systems level issue. I think at science agencies, there's a lot of recognition of the problems. So everybody knows that the average age at which you get your first NIH grant has been going up and up and up over time. And so now, you know, the average age at which you get your first grant is sometime in your 50s. Well, what does that tell us about how our system is supporting early career investigators? And so, you know, early career scientists, early career um, scientists. Yeah, okay. exactly. And so there's, I think, relative consensus on kind of what some of the major problems are, but it's hard to have the flexibility and agility to pilot different methods. And when we do pilot changes to the system, we often don't build in a component of learning to try to understand, like, is this better or worse than what we did before? And so I feel like more of a commitment to piloting and more of a commitment to rigorous piloting where you're trying to design explicit comparisons between here's two different ways of giving out grants and what's the average age of the scientists that get supported under the two different models and how do we think about whether this is going to contribute to or hurt our ability to support early career scientists. I just feel like that kind of commitment to learning and experimentation could just do a lot to not just have everyone bemoan the problems that we observe in the system, but rather to really think about what are the reforms that we need to have going forward. I have to imagine that one of the intellectual barriers to coming up with federal bureaucracies, federal, federal agencies that include a lot of experimentation and agility is simply that most people don't want that in most government agencies. It sounds dangerous, wasteful, like, oh my God, you're going to take taxpayer money and you're going to try all these things and some of those things aren't even going to work. Like, what are you doing? Leave all the experimentation to the private sector. And so it's like you have to convince people, well, no, actually, this is going to lead to a lot more innovation in the economy. It's just going to sometimes look like a lack of accountability or to look like waste, but it's not. It's a necessary part of the process. And winning that intellectual battle seems like it's really important. 
Yeah, so I actually think it's an easier case for that. I think oftentimes, you know, the standard that we have for clinical trials where we enroll patients to try out new drugs is often referred to as equipoise. So it's like just we have genuine uncertainty over which of these treatments is better for patients. And I think oftentimes we're in situations where we have genuine uncertainty over what the right, what the most efficient use of taxpayer funds is. And so this isn't a case where it's like, are we going to experiment and is that going to be crazy and we're going to spend money on research? It is to be a responsible steward of public funds, we're going to invest investigate what the right way of delivering the service is. And that, in fact, there's like a very strong, effective public service case for doing this. A really nice example was at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. They were given kind of a mandate from the executive branch highlighting that they were concerned that what are called independent inventors, which is a phrase that amazingly is just meant to mean you apply for a patent without a lawyer, um, that they were very disadvantaged in the system because essentially you don't know how to write your patent. You don't know how to engage in the process of what's called patent prosecution, which is interacting with the patent examiner, and you're much less likely to get your patent approved if you apply without a lawyer. My favorite example of this is almost every first decision that you get back on your patent application is a rejection. But if you have a lawyer, your lawyer will tell you that that's not actually a rejection. That's just an invitation to resubmit your application with some changes. <laughs> but of course, like if you don't have a lawyer, no one is there to tell you that. And so they did an experiment where they basically reached out to a subset of independent inventors and gave them some additional assistance with applying to the system. And it looked like it really helped in terms of getting more patent rates granted. As a side note, it particularly helped women inventors, which is interesting in the context of there's a lot of evidence from other social science contexts that women and men respond differently to rejections. And so anyway, that result really resonated, I think, with a lot of the gender uh, literature and economics. Um, but, you know, there, this was raised because we were concerned that the current system was not serving that population well. And the experiment, which was very low cost, um, you know, basically just took the opportunity to say, would it be a good use of public funds to kind of do this relatively low cost intervention and get more people into the system? And it looked like it did overcome kind of a bias that was against them. So I don't think it has to be like this crazy risk taking, like this is an expensive thing. I think this can be, we have priorities that our agency is trying to achieve. We have uncertainty over how best to achieve them. And there's oftentimes actually quite low cost and short turnaround ways to actually investigate whether public funds can be spent more effectively. Just to even build on that, I think it's, you know, it's interesting to contrast the way that the government operates with, you know, a lot of the way that the business sector operates. And oftentimes, like, there are good reasons for the differences there. But one thing that happens, you know, all the time in, in business is you do A-B tests, you know, so you'll have some small product feature that you want to see whether or not it works. And so you'll roll it out randomly to some group of your audience uh, in, in a way where half of them get it and half of them don't. You see what the difference is there. And that generates information to you, the business owner, about how the, the business should proceed. Um, but those Oftentimes, aren't these multi-year, billions of dollars, massive, you know, infrastructure for for experimentation? They're really small tweaks on the operational level, and I think there's still a lot of low-hanging for for government kind of yeah these these operational RCTs that can sort of uh, be used. Given you know these randomized control trials, yeah. exactly, exactly. And so, actually, uh, the economist Ben Jones has has a good. He contrasts sort of operational RCTs with what you could call existential RCTs, where basically you're putting the entire, you know, track record of a given program or person kind of like on trial in some sense. You're trying to say, does this whole program work in the way we think it does? And you run sort of a larger scale trial to see whether or not that works. And oftentimes that is like a much harder lift. I think there's a lot of natural antibodies and administrative bureaucracies to prevent that kind of stuff. And so I think starting with, you know, these smaller scale operational RCTs is, you know, 
you can still get tons of new performance increases. But like no one felt threatened. No one felt like, you know, their job was on the line. And it also wasn't like a massive investment in terms of the, the public sector. So I think uh, that, that's a great way to start. Um, both of you have written about the importance of having competition, not necessarily between different federal agencies that are trying to foster science and innovation, but within those federal agencies, having competition between different models for how to do things. I think Caleb, you referred to this as the Netflix model in one of your essays. So can you just like give us a little bit more on how that would work, on how this kind of competition would function? Right. So I, I think Netflix provided a pretty interesting example of how a organization that at one point, you know, was set up with a very specific mission could over time, in some sense, totally change their model to go in a different direction. So, uh, you know, when Netflix started, it was primarily a DVD shipping company. You know, they invested in people that had a really good understanding of the blockbuster model and kind of how many DVDs did we need to get? How do we physically, you know, ship them from, from place to place? What's our supply logistics, you know, distribution network like? And then, you know, in the early 2000s, they started piloting this new model where they wanted to do direct streaming, you know, to to at-home users. But they realized that that was like such a fundamentally different thing that the organization was trying to do. It required a different set of metrics and goals. Probably the organizational culture of that should actually be a little bit different. Uh, the kinds of people that they would need to hire to run that kind of process were quite different than the people that existed at Netflix. So they, they almost built a small mini Netflix, you know, within the company that actually had quite a lot of institutional autonomy. You know, there's even reports that some of the top DVD executives were getting kicked out of the meetings of, you know, the, the streaming division of Netflix because they wanted to make sure that the streaming division had sort of the institutional autonomy they needed to test out new things. And lo and behold, uh, you know, the, the streaming division of Netflix now is the entire company. That is what Netflix is. And I think it's easy to forget, you know, kind of how, how Netflix started. And so obviously, I, I wouldn't necessarily expect that we can have government agencies completely, you know, change everything they do in the same way Netflix did. But but I do think this model of small units that are new are granted a large degree of institutional autonomy and sort of have a specific operational niche that you're asking them to fill. That can be a model or a way for bureaucracies within the federal government to bring on a sort of new capabilities, new tools, new teams in a way that can oftentimes be challenging. So I, I think is is. Can you one, give an example of how that would like? What what are some examples of like two different kinds of models that might compete with each other? Right. Um, so sometimes it can be direct competition. Sometimes it can just be like adding in a feature that the organization doesn't really do. So as one example, given the the recent COVID crisis, um, CDC really came. So this is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, really came into the spotlight. Uh, they didn't act as, as an organization that seemed to be controlling and preventing diseases in the way that I think um, the public wanted or expected and certainly sort of the, the public policy apparatus wanted. And over time, this was partially because the organization had sort of lost its operational capacity. When the CDC was started, it was very sort of on the ground trying to help prevent, you know, outbreaks of malaria. Um, and then kind of over time, as a lot of the ongoing outbreaks in the U.S. thankfully were pushed back, the organization shifted to being more of an academic institution. It started attracting, you know, people that wanted access to unique data sets, people who were primarily there to sort of like write and, and do research and publish things. And that, that was sort of became the organizational culture over time. So then when COVID struck and we needed a very 
operational sort of boots on the ground, how do we actually contain this disease, the CDC kind of wasn't ready. And one of the ways that you could imagine trying to prevent that for the future would be starting a new division within CDC that's very focused on sort of the operational logistics and supply chain capacity of how do you actually run through wargaming exercises, basically, of like, you know, let's imagine there's an outbreak in Area X. Like, let's actually go and test the thing. The military does this a lot. But that kind of operational capacity doesn't really exist within the CDC. But you can imagine trying to start a new division within the CDC that is focused on that. Maybe they do a lot more, you know, sort of uh, disease surveillance and monitoring. You could have them actively going through airports and, you know, swapping areas to see what kind of unknown pathogens are just, you know, going throughout the built environment. That would be a very sort of operational mission that is in some sense different than what CDC is currently doing and I think would benefit from having its own institutional autonomy. Heidi, you've also written about some other federal agencies that are trying out a little bit of experimentation themselves. And I'm going to quote you to yourself now because I want you to get in on the fun here, too. Uh, You're right. Quote, we are also excited by the opportunities afforded by the new public sector agencies such as ARPA-H and the National Science Foundation's new Directorate for Technology, Innovation, and Partnerships, or TIP, which seem genuinely open to opportunities to build data and research directly into the fabric of these new organizations, unquote. You want to give us a sense of, like, what those agencies are doing and why they're new and interesting and and might lead to better economics of innovation? Yes, and let me give a slightly broader response to your question. So listening to Caleb kind of reminded me that I think oftentimes we do think of these as opportunities for new institutions, but actually autonomous suborganizations in general just offer almost like a fiscal federalism type argument for um, piloting and learning within an organization. So at the National Institutes of Health, for example, totally separate from RBH, which I'll come back to, there are all of these different centers and institutes which are focused on individual diseases. And so John Lorsch, for example, is in charge of the NIGMS arm, which is the general medicine arm. But he piloted a new program that moved away from the traditional model of NIH funding, which was very project-based. So I'm going to propose a specific project. I'm going to get funding for that project, he started what's called the MIRA program, which was basically giving grants to people. And the idea was, we're going to let that person have discretion over pursuing what they feel are the highest value projects that they could be pursuing. And so he had the autonomy at at NIGMS to implement that MIRA program on his own. But it's something where other NIH centers and institutes can then learn from his example and kind of potentially look. And so, you know, you look at people like Mike Chang, who heads the National Eye Institute, and I think he sees what John Lorsch is doing. And he's like, oh, should we be doing more of that at the yeah, National no Eye Institute? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, and so I think even within organizations, kind of having some degree of autonomy kind of enables more, like I said, piloting and opportunities for experimentation also. You see a similar thing across the National Science Foundation directorates. So something like a decade ago, some of the National Science Foundation directorates started experimenting with what they called a no-deadlines approach to grant making. And so rather than having cycles where every six months you can apply for a National Science Foundation grant, they said, just no deadlines, like send us something whenever you get it. And it was motivated by the idea that a lot of people submit kind of relatively bad applications at the deadline, and that actually creates a lot of workload for reviewers and staff, and actually that the marginal applications that are pulled in kind of right at the deadline might not be that high quality. And like, why do we we need this deadline structure in particular. And so one of the interests at NSF right now is learning about should other divisions be using more of that no deadlines model? Like, did it basically fund similar quality grants, but with lower workloads? Like, did that increase the efficiency of the system? And so the idea that some directorates did that at 
National Science Foundation and others didn't, I think, gives an opportunity for learning answers to those kinds of questions. On the two new examples that you mentioned, which, yes, new structures generally are kind of new opportunities, you know, the National Science Foundation, this new Technology Innovations and Partnerships Directorate, there's been a lot of statements on record, uh, both from the NSF director and from the TIP director in particular, that they're very interested with piloting and experimenting with new funding models. And so they've been particularly expressing interest in what are called these golden ticket approaches to science funding, which is, you know, the idea that a lot of science funding is very consensus driven. So, you know, the average score that you get from a team of reviewers is what's used to rank your application and kind of prioritize who gets funded and who doesn't. But what if there's actually a lot of disagreement on a given application? Well, maybe that's actually a sign that this is kind of frontier science that we should be taking a chance on funding. And so they're interested in understanding at a diagnostic level, like would golden tickets kind of lead to better outcomes? Like how would we even know? Would we get people submitting different kinds of applications if they knew that that was how they were going to be evaluated? So something that sounds like super high risk, but could be high reward would get consensus away in that earlier process. But if you give it a golden ticket, yeah, most of those won't pay out, but some of those are going to pay out huge in terms of new innovations that really, you know, change things. Yeah. So that's the positive narrative on my my Ah, I got you. Okay. You know, I mean, I think there's a lot of, you know, people that think, well, maybe this will just identify the same applications. You know, is there even, are there even that high variance, you know, scores, applications, or, you know, would this really be kind of similar to the old system or would this potentially be, you know, some... Um, I don't want to say, um, you know, poor reviewer, but, you know, it's not like you're weighting experts more, you know, so maybe some person that doesn't know anything about the topic really likes it, but everybody that knows something about it doesn't like it, and maybe you actually get kind of worse outcomes. So I feel like there's a lot of learning that we should do on kind of diagnosing when and in what situations do we feel like this is improving outcomes. Um, But I'm really excited to see that the NSF has expressed that's commitment to wanting to just do some piloting and do some experimentation around learning that. I think this is like, one of the nice virtues of experimentation is that it sort of lowers the bar. I think the the almost the, the common way in which people conceptualize what the government does is it carefully deliberates and considers some, you know, initiative it wants to do, and then it decides to do it basically all at once or nothing. It's sort of, you know, one big rollout. Now, every director across the NSF is going to be using golden tickets. And that, that raises the stakes so much about how sure you have to feel that this is actually going to be a good idea. Whereas the smaller, more iterative, let's do a diagnostic scale, let's like run a small scale experiment, Let's actually get real empirical results on sort of how this changes the distribution of who's getting funded or not. And then that can inform our future decision making about whether we want to expand this or whether we don't. Or maybe it might actually shine light on some other part of the scientific ecosystem we hadn't been focusing on, but turns out to be really important. You mentioned the issue of scale, and that's where I want to turn to next. because This is really interesting because everything the two of you have just said sounds wonderful, right? More experimentation, better ideas. This strikes me as really important work. My question, though, is, is it happening already at the right scale? Are these agencies getting enough money, too little money? Are they getting more than they actually need? And if they're not getting enough, if this is something that we think could really pay dividends, is there a challenge to scaling it eventually anyways? Because then all of these experiments, all of these trials and things that you'd be testing They'll start getting more attention if these agencies start getting a lot more money and people might start calling for less innovation, less experimentation, more accountability. And I'm putting all these things in air quotes, right? And that strikes me as a very difficult political problem in addition to getting the economics of innovation right, which is hard enough in the first place. So 
we can keep talking about Ben Jones. He's clearly one of my and Caleb's like favorite economists. <laughs> but um, so Ben Jones and Larry Summers had this really nice paper kind of tabulating what do we think the social returns to research investments are and trying to answer almost this existential question of should we be spending more or less on publicly funded research? Caleb and I have talked a lot about this. We're working on a, on a paper together with Patrick Collison kind of making a, a written version of this argument. But Patrick he, Collison of Stripe, of the Stripe. CEO of Stripe? Yeah, okay. um, who, who's himself been very involved in different science funding areas. But, you know, I think the, the concern is that if the science um, production function is, hasn't been optimized for productivity and you ask, well, what are the returns to increasing the scale of research investments, you're going to get the wrong answer relative to if we made some improvements in how we're funding science in the first place, that's going to improve the productivity of the system and you're going to get a different answer for what's the return to doing more funding. And so I just feel like it's really putting the cart before the horse to kind of say, how much should we be spending on R&D when we've spent like almost no effort trying to optimize the system and trying to get more returns out of the production function the way it's set up. And so I'm really excited about this partly as kind of a ground lane effort before we feel like we're even ready to kind of get into those. Oh, other yeah, questions. that's a great, great yeah. point. I guess my, my question, though, was maybe in two parts was, are we at the right scale now? But also later on, will there be a challenge to scaling, even if it's done really well, even if all of these things prove to have wonderful returns and the economics of innovation improves and we can see directly, hey, this funding led to these results, won't it still be hard to scale precisely because of the nature of what it is that we're trying to do, right? Like there is experimentation. There are things that don't work. There are grants that are not going to pay out. And I guess I'm wondering if the bigger scale will also attract a lot more scrutiny. Yeah, certainly possible. I mean, I think it's interesting. So as Heidi, I think, eloquently points out, the we, we don't actually know what the average returns are because we haven't tried to, in some sense, optimize the scientific production function. But it's worth noting that, you know, even the, the, the Jones and Summers paper, which is in some sense looking at the average returns from this unoptimized system, does show that it is massively positive, that in some sense we should be spending, you know, more social resources on science. And so I think in some sense that's actually a quite promising result that, you know, here we have the system that is in in some sense evolved out of an accident of, you know, history and path dependence, and yet it still seems to be returning, you know, average returns that indicate that we should potentially be spending more. I think there can also be a nice symmetry between, um, perhaps I should say, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. And that oftentimes, if you want agencies to undertake things that are sort of naturally difficult for them to do, I think experimentation is a very, in some sense, unnatural thing for bureaucracies to do. Bureaucracies are at their very nature kind of about solidifying a set of instructions that it can, in some sense, be handed off to a successor. And so the very nature of experimentation is difficult for them. So being able to provide additional resources to do that can be, I think, a political economy way of making it easier for the agency to take it on. Now, to your point, of, you know, does this in some sense, how does this change the long run political dynamics of, of the agency? My hope is that actually having sort of a base of experimentation can provide much more rigorous evidence to be able to go back to the public and in some sense show them what you're getting for your funding, that, you know, we're not doing this just willy-nilly, we're not just doing this out of some blind trust in science, but actually because we can sort of see the results, we've done the randomized control trial, we can see that running the program in, in this way as opposed to that way ended up increasing productivity by 20%. And especially in kind of this era where um, bureaucracies, I think, are quite unwilling to 
exercise discretion when they feel like in some sense they might take the fall, it feels almost asymmetric for them. If I'm an individual person in, in an agency, I, I get very little upside if I take a risk and it, and it works. That Now it just gets integrated as part of the sort of normal practices of the agency. But if I try something and it fails, I take on basically all the risk. And so experimentation, I hope, can sort of de-risk that process. You're, 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 small, you're trying and you're failing on much smaller scales. And then once you do succeed, you have sort of the evidence base you need to be able to advocate for sort of expansion of it. Last question for both of you. What is something about the economics of innovation that is crucially important, but that you think most people either don't know about or misunderstand? So one thing that um, I talk about a lot with with Caleb, as well as um, my collaborator, Paul Nehouse, who's at University of California at San Diego, is how we expose students to very practical problems. So in the sciences, there's this analogy that people used where they talk about what's called Pasteur's quadrant. And so the idea was, if you think about research, some research is academically novel, more so than other research. Some research is more practically useful than other research. But kind of the sweet spot is research that's both valued for its academic contribution, but also solving a very applied problem. And so Pasteur's work is often highlighted where, you know, pasteurization was kind of motivated by observing like a real world applied problem that needed to get fixed. He went back and did basic scientific research to solve that applied problem, but it was valued kind of both for its practical importance and for the basic scientific contribution. So I would love to build out more work on the economics of innovation in that kind of pasteurous quadrant of science policy, because I just feel like a lot of academics are writing things that are really interesting basic science contributions, but are really disconnected from the decisions that on a day-to-day basis, the institutions that are actually funding and supporting science need to inform their work. And so they have real questions about which kinds of projects are best funded by project-specific grants at the National Institutes of Health versus person-specific grants in John Lorsch's Mira program at NIH versus by ARPA-H. And how should we think about the relative merits of matching different projects with the kinds of funding that's going to like let them realize their potential? And on a lot of these very practical questions, it is an academically interesting question. I, I can see that a theory paper on that or an empirical paper on that would publish very well and be really influential, but it would also solve like a very applied need by the people that are actually trying to do work to kind of encourage um, scientific progress. And so I'm just really excited about the work that Caleb and Paul and Matt Clancy at Open Philanthropy and other people are trying to do to basically build an easier on-road to understanding what are the questions that are in this pestuous quadrant of scientific policy research so that we can get more academic research on the questions that are most valuable for a policy perspective. I think the main thing maybe people don't realize is just how tiny and young this field is. Uh, the economics of innovation really is is not a large group. I think uh, Heidi and, and Matt and Paul and others have been doing really deep work to try to build this out as a field. But I, I like uh, the economist Tyler Cowen at George Mason has, you know, sort of a shorthand. He says, you know, when he looks through all the various academic papers that are coming out in economics, he thinks the economics of innovation are maybe about, you know, 1%, 2% of the papers that are published. And to his mind, it should be, you know, at the very least 10%, 15%. And so... Um, especially given just how massively important innovation is. I mean, in the long run, innovation is basically the only thing that matters. It's 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 the how... The famous quote that says exactly that, right? It's not everything, but it's almost everything. And exactly. Paul Krugman or, or another economist. Absolutely. Yeah. And so given that sort of like massive magnitude of how important this area is, it is, is so puzzling to me, sort of the lack of attention. And I'm so glad that Heidi's been trying to build out this whole sort of infrastructure and ecosystem to support young academics to come and enter this area. And so I guess maybe my, my call to any listener 
entrepreneurs is, is, why aren't you focusing on innovation? Why aren't you working on innovation? I meet economists and I say, oh, you know, housing, labor markets, whatever, it's interesting. But innovation, that's, you know, that's, that's where the, the meat is right now. And I think there's so many opportunities for young people to actually meaningfully contribute to this field. There's so many interesting questions. There's so many ways that these scientific institutions are now actually showing real openness to trying out new new reforms and new pieces of experimentation. So um, I, I strongly encourage, you know, folks to, to get more involved here. I think there's, there's so much work to be done and there's so much low-hanging fruit. Heidi Williams, Caleb Watney, thanks so much for being on The New Bazaar. This is wonderful work and it's super important to get it right. So I'm delighted to have had you here. Thank you. This is a blast. And that's our show for today. You can find links to the work done by Heidi and Caleb at the Institute for Progress in the show notes for this episode. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review or tell a friend. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next episode. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.